Okay then, here we are. We are looking at our third part of uh, these talks, looking at the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about how we now get into the text, having spent some time looking at how we prepare to look at it. We're actually going to be diving in a little bit more today. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much that you have chosen to reveal yourself, ultimately in Jesus, but in Scripture too. That as we read these pages, as we read the ways in which you have inspired your people to write about you, that we might have something to learn from that. So would you open our hearts and minds? Would you dwell within us by your spirit and help us to hear your voice speaking to us? Amen. Okay, so here we are. Uh, we're going to have a, a quick recap first of where we've got to. Um, uh, and we're going to just mention that today's um, part is called How to Approach. And it's really looking at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. So here's our recap. Uh, in our first talk, we looked at the core of the story being God's desire to reconcile humanity to himself. And in the second part, we looked at how the narrative context for Leviticus is the story of humanity's exile because of a desire for self-fulfillment rather than uh, life in all its fullness. That's the Genesis bit. And then God bringing his people back to himself. And we see that happening in Exodus. But now we're into Leviticus itself. And even, even in these first chapters, there is really a story being told. It's a, a theological story, a story that's designed to explain something about God, how he makes a way for humanity to approach him. So, first of all, we're going to look at why the first verse of Leviticus it's such a big deal. Okay then. It is. It is a really significant verse for the people of Israel. And the reason for this is because of something that happens at the end of Exodus. Something really significant has gone on in those last few verses. This really is summed up in Exodus 40, 34. So the tabernacle has been designed by God and built. And Moses has overseen that work. And, and um, Belazel has taken control, uh, like kind of like a foreman, works foreman, of making sure that everything is done uh, with beauty and artistry. And then at the end, in verse 34, the cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And God's actually arrived in the tabernacle. This is nearly at the very end of the scroll. And if you've been listening uh, to the scroll being read up to this point, this is the climax. You can see how most of the scroll is at one end now. And you've, you've had an enormous amount of story. This scroll has given uh, us um, Israel in Egypt, in slavery, it's given us murder and miracles. It's given us a burning bush and a river of blood and pillars of cloud and fire. We've had smashing stone tablets and Moses' marriages in there. We have military manoeuvres. We've had escapes. It's been really, really dramatic. Death and ritual and food and fighting and flying out of Egypt. And then God has designed a home for himself. And right at the end of the scroll, God moves in. God is moving with his people. And that's awesome. But then the hero of the scroll, Moses himself, can't get in 
to meet with God. Moses, who is mediated for the whole nation, who received the instructions from God to make the tabernacle, can't get in to the tent of meeting. And suddenly the climax has a cliffhanger. What on earth happens next? God has moved in, but he isn't accepting visitors. It's, it's called the tent of meeting, but no one is going in to meet him. Eden has been recreated. It's been replanted in the middle of God's people, but humanity is still shut out. The entrance is guarded by cherubim. That's the way the design was done. And in that way, it's much like the Garden of Eden. So how can the people enter and encounter God? How can they get back to the tree of life? It seemed to be heading for happily ever after. But no, what happens next? What do you mean that's the end of the scroll? What's going on here? So here is the next scroll, Leviticus and chapter one and verse one. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting and said, or he said. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This resolves that narrative tension. But you have to imagine for that tension to really work. You have to imagine that the scroll is finished. The, the story has been told. And um, you, as, as an audience member, is going, I can't wait to hear what happens next. How, how come it's not resolved? How come it's not done? And then you have, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting and said. Moses can't get in, but God speaks and says, when you approach me, this is how you do it. So the tent is, is made people can't get in and then God deals with that by way of invitation come to me and when you come this is what you do the deadlock of humanity's inability to approach God is broken but only because God has broken it right at the start of Leviticus God breaks the deadlock by speaking and inviting notice how God called and spoke and said all in that one verse three terms for his voice God called and spoke and said his voice makes the difference. When he says something is going to change, it is going to change. When he invites, the invitation is real. Leviticus 1.1 also shows the need for a mediator and priests will have a big part to play in this book. God called to Moses and spoke to him so that he could tell the people. Moses has a role in mediating to the people. So Leviticus is a navigation book. It's a book about the path to life. It's a a book kind of defined by its opening words, and he called and invited. This is God's initiative, and it's uh, resonant of other times when God has taken the initiative by calling. Genesis 3, God calls to Adam in the garden. Exodus 3, God calls to Moses from the burning bush. Exodus 19, God calls to Moses from the mountain. Exodus 24, God calls to Moses from within the cloud. And Leviticus 1, here we are, God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting. So the door is not shut. The people have not been excluded, but they do need to understand that God is special because he's not like them. So how you approach him really matters. Leviticus 1, 1 matters so much because it is the invitation from within a holy place. God offers an invitation. He has brought his people out of Egypt and towards himself, and he is still bringing them. And this does define Leviticus. The invitation to meet with him is the purpose of Leviticus. God is continuing to make a way to restore Eden, to make that Sabbath purpose of a place where God is with his people the goal, the goal that he will return to, the, 
the God with us purpose. That pinnacle of creation, not humanity, but humanity in the presence of God is still being pursued and God is still making it happen. So Leviticus 1.1 is crucial. So what next? Well, the tabernacle and its role. The tabernacle is crucial because it has two theological meanings. One is the dwelling of God and the other is the way to God's house. It's important to remember something about God's presence here. Because God is holy, his presence is holy. And because his presence is holy, messed up humanity can't be in that presence. No analogy is really going to do this justice, but because they never do. No analogy of God really works because you can always pull them apart. But maybe think of it a bit like this. God's holiness is like fire. That's a good biblical image of God's presence. And people, because we are messed up and sinful and self-centered and pursue a self-fulfilling life, we end up being very much like hydrogen really really flammable go go anywhere near god and we're just going to get burned up and god knows this god knows what it is about our humanity that's going to make it impossible for us to be where he is it has its limitations as an analogy that that fire and hydrogen thing but it does draw on something of the idea of, of natural states god's natural state is is to be that holy that it's like fire and our natural state is to be flammable and God knows that for us to be with him, he's going to have to do something to help us be less flammable. He can't be anything other than holy. And let's face it, we wouldn't want him to be anything other than holy. We are created to be with God, but our wiring means we keep on choosing not God. And so we get messed up and we're not clean and holy like God is. So the tabernacle is God's house and tabernacle is also a way to approach the divine presence and in tabernacle God is both set apart and accessible through a priest he is kept holy and becomes approachable and the way that access is made possible is through a series of activities sacrifices that represent different things these tabernacle activities are a system for worship in much of the written work about Leviticus, this system is referred to as a cultus. It's just a word that means systems of, of worship. Cultic worship, that is to say, worship that's built around a cultus or a framework or a pattern. Cultic worship is worship described by a system. And, and this system in Leviticus is there to tell us a story, to explain to Israel the significance of the different activities. So they don't just do them, they understand what they signify while they do them. Leviticus is about a reconciliation with God through the tabernacle cultus, through that pattern. Now, this isn't because God needs rituals, okay? It's not that he needs humanity to jump hurdles. The rituals are necessary in a way because we need to make sure our nature is changed, but also required because uh, people need to understand what it is that God requires. So they need to tell a story. The Bible does this an awful lot. Jesus talks in parables a lot, picture language and, and storytelling in order to explain something. Revelation at the end of the New Testament is apocalyptic literature. It's a genre, particular genre of literature. It's not historical. It's not prophetic in the same way that Old Testament prophecy is. It's apocalyptic, different from Gospels and letters. It's its own genre. So it talks a lot in analogy 
at a loss in picture language. And here, something sort of similar is happening. And it's, it's not surprising, really, because because we're talking about a culture here that didn't have a universal education system in place. There's a culture without paper or printing. So it's useful for activities to carry meaning. This way, as you do things, you learn about their significance. It's learning by doing. The doing is part of the teaching, which is interesting, given that studies even in our contemporary society show that two thirds of people learn best by doing, not by reading or by writing, but by doing. So God makes a way for his people to approach him. He provides the tabernacle and its associated activities. The invitation is made and the way to respond is explained. This invitation from God to reconciliation with him and to a growth in holiness is answered through this cultic worship, this cultus, this system for worship. Psalm 15 says, how can Israel dwell with God, with Yahweh? And in Leviticus, the answer is this, Israel can dwell with God, and it does so through a pattern of worship, a liturgy of actions. God is holy. Humanity is not. So there is a gap, and it's a gap between sacred and not sacred. It's a gap between holy, which is where God is, and distant which is where humanity is. It's a, a gap between heaven and earth. It's a gap that's bridged by the tabernacle, which, which becomes a kind of portal between heaven and earth. One of my favourite uh, fantasy fiction um, story series is by a guy called Tom Holt, and it's about a portable door, which is a, a door that comes in a tube and you can unroll it, stick it up on a wall, uh, and then you can open it and go wherever you choose to go. That kind of portal is made available through the tabernacle. Or if you want a, a much more biblical way of understanding it, maybe Jacob's Ladder, where, where a, um, a walkway becomes available up and down which people can travel between heaven and earth. Maybe a bit in between those two. Tabernacle and its associated structures and activities are this bridge. Exodus ends with God dwelling among his people, which is a kind of precursor, isn't it, to Jesus in John 1.14, who dwells among us. But the purpose of the covenant is not just dwelling, it's also engagement. It's not just God is happens to be present where we happen to be. It's much more God engages with us where we are. And interestingly, that that's also seems to be uh, a bit of an echo with uh, John 14 where the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus to dwell in us. Through the tabernacle, the abode of God becomes the meeting place of God. So Leviticus is not simply ritual instruction, it's theological narrative. So let's have a look at those rituals, those processes, those rites, shall we say, R-I-T-E-S, that kind of ritual rite. Well, here we are then at part three of the talk. The chapters about ritual and patterns for worship, particularly sacrifice, and we're mostly looking at Leviticus 1 to 7 here, but we're not going to go through verse by verse. We're going to take an overview approach. And I will just quickly throw a note in on this. When a preacher presents scripture, they're not providing a service. Instead, they are offering something, something that comes from their calling, 
by God, their experience with God and their training for serving God. Preachers don't read the Bible so that a congregation doesn't have to. I will say that again. A preacher doesn't read the Bible so that the congregation doesn't have to. Each of us, as we follow Jesus, as we trust God, has a duty to read scripture ourselves, to to go deep into it, to swim in it. Preachers read it with their congregation, not for, or certainly not instead. We read with. It's a collaborative thing. To think in terms of they are reading it so I don't have to, is to turn preaching into a consumer product, and it must never be that. I will say that I'm very conscious that probably none of us ever think um, I don't have to read the Bible because my preacher will do it for me, but very often we tend to work on the basis that we've heard something preached, so, so that Bible bit is now imparted. Uh, and I don't need to add anything to that because it's been done for me on some kind of sub or semi-conscious level that does really run the risk of it being a consumer process but we 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 must never be in that place because we're Jesus disciples we're not his customers we're not buying something we're living something church is a community of pilgrims traveling together so church isn't a consumer product either you, we if we go and we're in position at some point and uh, maybe not during COVID-19 which is where we are right now but at some point in the future if we go back to gathering in the same place and, and sitting in rows there is a risk that again the church will become a consumer product I, I have I've I've turned up I possibly have paid some money too, so therefore I will receive uh, the product that's being offered to me. That is not where we are. So in preaching, we must listen with discernment. Right? We, we bring the Holy Spirit with us as we listen, much as we expect the preacher to bring the Holy Spirit with us as they speak. But we are not there to give or withhold approval. It's not our role. There should never be a TripAdvisor mentality to listening to preaching. If we start doing that, then we are no longer disciples together. Instead of being a priesthood of believers, we become a kind of offstead of believers, seeking to guarantee good or outstanding provision by some standards of our own. And it will be of our own. God does not lead us to be defenders of him or his scripture. We don't need to be gatekeepers. We need to walk with people, bring our discernment into play, bring our wisdom into play, encourage, and sometimes also challenge. And if we know someone well enough, we can go as far as to rebuke. But it is the Spirit of God who sets the standards, and the Spirit of God is peaceful and patient and kind and gentle. So as a preacher, my role is to walk with those who listen, to accept questions and challenges, to encourage and declare and teach. But I'm not here to gain the approval of the congregation. The only approval I'm interested in having is that of my master, who is Jesus. Let's get back to Leviticus. In some respects, uh, this this tabernacle experience and the uh, sacrifices that go with it are, are a kind of stage in its drama. The tabernacle is recreating something. The thing it's recreating is the cosmos and Eden. The priesthood recreates something too. It recreates the humanity that God intended, that is able to mediate between God and humanity, that's broken. 
And then these directed rituals create something like a script, a kind of a, a dialogue between humanity and God. And this approach allows people to see the glory of God. In Exodus 24, so going back a few chapters, about 16 chapters, the glory of God is seen by the people, but only at a distance and only in the protective cloud. Through this approach, that's how we finish this, this series of sacrifices that are described and the consecration of priests that follow. The glory of God is seen by all the people in Leviticus 9, 23 and 24. In these chapters, God is approached through sacrifice and ordained priesthood. By the way, note, as these instructions are given, you have seven speeches. Yeah, seven again. Where's my hands gone? There they are. Seven speeches. Again, sacrifice, seven steps for consecration. Echoes again of that creation and the pinnacle of it, which is the Sabbath presence of God. So we're looking at the sacrifices offered to God in worship. Sacrifice is the way to approach. In the Hebrew word offering has the meaning draw near as its root. So when God says when anyone brings an offering, he's saying when anyone will draw near to me. God is expecting his people to draw near and to do so through the sacrifices that they bring. And while atonement is the pinnacle of the sacrificial system, atonement is still also a means to an end. Atonement is not the end itself. Atonement is not the goal because the reconciliation between humanity and God is the goal. The Hebrew use of the atonement word kippur has a kind of twofold meaning, a ransom from death and a purification from pollution, specifically the, the um, pollution of death itself. And to come to God and benefit from atonement, Israel had to experience two things, a ransom from death and purification from the pollution of death's realm. We're going to look at a list of six ritual activities now. They appear at different points in the Leviticus 1-7 to narrative. So when you go back and read those chapters, you will find some of these things repeated and other bits you'll find maybe once. And in those respects, we're not actually working through chapter by chapter, but we are laying down foundations that mean that when we read Leviticus 1-7 to in, in its entirety, we're able to, to understand the story that's being told here by God to his people about how they approach him. So, number one, the presentation rites. This is to do with the choosing of an animal. Choosing that animal is a costly process. It's costly because the animal's been raised and fed and tended at personal cost. The animal has to be the best available to be offered without blemish or defect. Really, the choice of animal represents a kind of set-apart intent. This, this is how it much it matters to me, says the worshipper, that I will choose this animal because it's really good, because it is without fault. The choice of animal expresses the worshipper's perspective on how important worship of God really is, how great God is, what, what he, what, what's justifiable to bring to him because of how great he is. The worshipper recognises the need for something without blemish, something better than they themselves could be, to stand in as a substitute for a broken and contaminated, impure, polluted self. That's number one. Number two, the hand-leaning rites. So there's stuff in Leviticus about leaning your hand on the animal. I'll use that hand instead. So pressing down really quite hard 
on the animal's head. There's different ways in which this has been interpreted, but what I want to bring to you is the idea that um, the, the animal is being identified with by, by me, by the worshipper. That's my blameless substitute. And that animal remains blameless. It has to have remained blameless because the aroma from it being um, burned can ascend to God and be where God is. And the flesh is considered still holy. So the carcass of the animal has to be burned in a clean place. The worshipper cannot go into the most holy place, but the blameless animal can go in on my behalf. So sin is not transferred to it because if it was, it wouldn't be able to be in those holy places. It's a blameless substitute. It is blameless where I am not, so it can represent me. Stand in my place. Number three, the slaughter right. So I was going to mention uh, that, that that's a hand leaning right. You might find in Leviticus 1 verse 4. Uh, the slaughter right, for example, is in Leviticus 1 verse 5. Not the only place you find it, but it is there. The slaughter right represents a, a willingness to die on the part of the worshipper. So the worshipper isn't going to die, but by being willing to sacrifice this animal by by uh, allowing it slaughter there's a willingness demonstrated for death the blameless one the animal dies in place of the owner life for life and that slaughter also is a recognition of god's role as judge that god has the right to um, call for a life for a life because he has authority he's that great he is that just i am not he is so i allow him to make that call and i offer a life in place of my own rescue is not as we see from this not just from death but through death and there's cross references for that so the red sea is a good example of how of how um Israel was rescued uh, as it was taken across the sea on dry land, um, not just out of death, but through death. As those, those waters then crashed back down and, and uh, so many of Egypt's best military were, were lost then. And the same with Noah. Death is, is the means through which, not just from which, uh, rescue takes place. Number four, blood manipulation, not the uh, not the uh, most chilled out phrase going it's a little bit gruesome in its way uh, what's important to remember here is that blood e is uh, equals life it's a symbol of life and we're talking about um, stuff that you might find in Leviticus 4 verses 5 to 7 uh, at this point so blood is equivalent to life so blood is it's put in different ways smeared and sprinkled and poured and dashed on various items in the tabernacle that represent God's presence. And each different approach, smearing, sprinkling, pouring and dashing, is indicative of a different thing. But in all those cases, life is placed on a thing that represents God's presence, all the way from the horns on the altar uh, to the trough around the altar itself. And the blameless life of the animal is identified with the worshipper. The blood of the animal is a sign of the individual's blameless life. 
and actually the the life blood um, uh, the blood which represents life ransoms from death itself and cleanses the stain of death so so life covers death if you like as 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 um, as blood is smeared on something life is is used as a cleaning material to clean death away blood of life in that respect is a bit like um, is a bit like a bleach to a uh, to a kitchen side or, or a toilet bowl even it, it can it, it can be put in place in order to kill something which is corrupt something like that as ever um, these analogies have their limits five sacrifice uh, we're talking about burning an ascension right here so in Leviticus 1 12 to 13 among others uh, it's called the ascension rite, but it's the one that's to do with burning and what happens to what has been burned. So the sacrifice here is not so much destroyed as it's burned, but transformed. It's not that it stops being, but instead of being uh, a physical presence, it gets transformed into smoke and the smoke can travel. And it can travel upwards. And actually, this burning word shares the same root as the word for incense. So the key here is this idea of a pleasing aroma, something that smells good, that takes the offering and brings it near to God. The ascension offering, the burnt offering in Leviticus, has an altar named after it in the tabernacle. This offering marks the start and end of each day. So the offering is an approach to God and his presence, and it's pleasing to God, and it shapes the day-to-day -day life of the people of Israel. That approach to God to be in his presence is something that marks off daily experience. The goal of the people is the same as the intention behind the offering. So the goal of the people is what the offering does. The goal of the tabernacle is day-to-day -day engagement with God. The, the, the sacrifice does this. The offering does this. And he, he dwells among them. A whole animal, the whole life is consecrated to God. There were ascension offerings made after the Noah flood and in place of Isaac. So again, whole lives, whole family lineage whole of humanity is consecrated to God as they offer themselves to him. The fire that it seems are burned on represents the glory of the presence of God. So the offerings are burned on this fire, being transformed by God's glory in order to reach God's glory through the offering of a whole life. In burning, the animal is transported from earthly realm to heavenly realm. Its location changes and so does its ownership. So this thing offered by the worshipper has now been given to God, offered to him, transferred in ownership to him by becoming smoke. And number six, this Leviticus uh, 3.11, for example, this involved eating sacrificed meat. So not all of what was um, sacrificed was eaten, <clears throat> but a good proportion of it was. Having entered the presence of God through sacrifice, the sense of fellowship is then reinforced. So what they do is they share a meal using the meat that's been sacrificed. So family and friends gather and eat the meat, but they're also eating the same meat that God is enjoying because some of it's been transferred to him and some of it they've kept. So they've kept some of the meat, some of it is with God. So actually they're now sharing a meal with God. Psalm 23 verse 5 talks about, this is the, the Lord's My Shepherd Psalm, talks about preparing uh, um, food in the presence of my enemies. And, and the idea of eating with God is, is included in that. This is what the NIV calls a fellowship offering. And it conveys a sense of wholeness, welfare and peace, which are all gathered in the Hebrew idea of shalom. Now, in looking at all those regulations, it's really important that we don't lose sight of God's purpose, which is to dwell with humanity and reconcile with humanity, to make a way for us to be with him. God is still taking the initiative. He 
cleanses Israel through atonement. He consecrates Israel through offerings. He blesses Israel through priests. He turns up and reveals his glory and he promises to turn up whenever his name is remembered, which resonates incredibly loudly with the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. There is so much in these instructions for sacrifices, not least the idea of presenting something to God by waving it in front of the altar. Uh, wave offerings are, are a relatively new thing in my understanding. There are many wonders here and it's worth taking the time to look at them in more depth. And as I've said before and say again, the treasure of Leviticus, the treasure of the whole of the Pentateuch, is not given up to a shallow reading. Spend the time. I wanted to let you know that as I've been preparing for this, I've been looking at some books that I found quite helpful. Um, Exodus and Leviticus for Everyone by John Golden Gay is very accessible. The Message of Leviticus by Derek Tidball is, is pretty good to get your teeth into. R.K. Harrison's book is a little bit heavier going. Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord by L. Michael Morales is, is heavier still, but actually um, it's a proper gold mine. So next time we're going to be looking at the role of priests. Actions are performed on behalf of the worshipper right the way through Leviticus. Um, having someone mediate for you, representing you to God, was normal, and Moses had been doing it for years. From God's point of view, mediation is needed. Priests are necessary. And disciples, according to 1 Peter, are priests together. So even now there's a need for this role. It's a, sort of like a, an executive assistant uh, as a gatekeeper for a chief executive. There's, there's no power of their own in any technical sense, but they can represent to God and from God. So let's keep in mind what's going on in Leviticus and let's keep this in mind too. Leviticus is about requirements both for approaching God and dwelling with God and these requirements are never abandoned but in Jesus they are fulfilled in new ways and if you wanted to get to grips with reading Leviticus and you want to make sense of how that fits in the light of Jesus I would recommend that you start looking at Hebrews 2 which makes a crack, does a cracking job of taking some of this understanding and applying it to what Jesus brought. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this incredible book. We ask that you would inspire us to keep going on with it, reading it uh, and spending time asking your spirit to guide us in how we get the most of it. We thank you that you have for such a long time now been making a way for us to approach you and we thank you for your love and your uh, faithfulness and your tenderness that makes that possible. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.